No Better Death, the podcast that knows while you can die no better death than your own, that doesn't mean we can't take a look for the unusual and the noteworthy in the deaths of others. Each episode, we'll take an in-depth look at some out-of-the-ordinary deaths and the events surrounding them. This show will contain explicit language and graphic details. I'm your host, Sick Grayson, and I'm doing this in an ASMR voice so I can lull you into a false sense of quiet security and then scramble your fucking brain! Hello, one and all. How are you guys doing this fine October day? And by fine, I mean cold, rainy, and cloudy. The summer was pretty nice in Colorado this year, unusually warm, which being from the south, I loved. But we seem to have skipped fall and went straight into winter. I I hate the cold. Two days ago, I go outside and there's snow on my car. You know, and, and I know if I don't like the cold, why am I in a state known for mountains and skiing? And that is because I'm stupid. Um, and wintertime makes me really depressed. I'm seasonal affective or whatever they call it. Uh, and the last few days here have just been utter crap. I don't mind the rain. I love the rain. But where I'm from, rain is warm like it's supposed to be. But here, it's cold and miserable. And I really hope we get a break from this for Halloween. Or Halloween's just going to be utter crap. Not much to report from the Grayson household this week. Uh, I didn't make it to the Gary Newman show in Denver. My car has a habit of dying randomly ever since I got the catalytic converter replaced a few months ago. It seems to run fine for a few days and then it'll die like five times in one day for no reason. Uh, I've tried taking it back to the shop twice and they say they can't replicate the problem so they can't fix it. So I'm just stuck with this car that dies in the middle of the interstate for no reason. I mean there's a reason, I just don't know what it is and it shouldn't be doing it. And of course, the day of the Gary Newman show, it decided to start acting up, and rather than be stuck on the side of I-25 for like four hours waiting on my wife to pick me up, I just decided not to go. Wasted 25 bucks on a ticket. Uh, But that's pretty much all I've got from my world. Uh, We're going to jump straight into a couple headlines before we get into this week's stories, which are Bad Medicine. Yes, like the Bon Jovi song. If you didn't know it's a Bon Jovi song, that's okay. I know enough about Bon Jovi for all of us. Uh, Growing up in the 80s and early 90s, I had to listen to my mother explain her lust for John Bon Jovi more times than I wish I had. Uh, And and to which I always said, have you seen Vampires, Mom? It's not a horrible movie, but his performance definitely doesn't get me wet. Bad medicine can also refer to medications that aren't good for you. A few days ago, Weird History, uh, shout out to Weird History on Facebook. They're always dropping little facts and bits of history throughout the day. Uh, Sort of like my Today in Death posts, but about everything, not just death. Uh, Go follow Weird History if you don't already. Uh, Sometimes I repost their stuff to the page. The other day they put up a picture of cough syrup from 1888 that contained alcohol, cannabis, chloroform, and morphine. This was like OG drank on steroids. Uh, Alcohol and cannabis, I can kind of get, but morphine and chloroform, not really good for you, especially the the chloroform part. And the crazy thing is, for that time, it was probably one of the safer medications you could take. You know, medicine back then went wrong, and when it did, it went really wrong. We're going to see that uh, in a little bit, but first we're going to get to a couple headlines. 
A catastrophic limo crash in upstate New York killed 20 people on Saturday and is being called one of the worst auto accidents in U.S. history. And there's a lot wrong here, guys. 17 passengers, including a newlywed couple and four sisters, the driver, and two pedestrians died when the limo blew through a stop sign at a three-way stop, hit a parked SUV, and struck two pedestrians. Locals in the area where the accident occurred have complained about safety conditions at that intersection for years. Uh, a fatal accident happened in the same spot in 2008, and since that accident, there's been at least three tractor-trailer accidents and countless automobile accidents at this same intersection. I couldn't get the details on what exactly is wrong with it, but it sounds like the stop signs might be hard to see or the visibility of the road is bad. I'm not sure whether it's the design of the roads or trees or buildings or whatever, but the people that work in the buildings around this intersection, uh, I read a few interviews and they all say like, yeah, accidents happen out here all the time. People end up out behind our building when they go through that stop sign all the time. So something's up with this intersection. Uh, the town knows about it. The people of the town know about it. And the local Department of Transportation has been discussing turning it into a roundabout to make it safer, but they haven't done that yet. The intersection's not all that was wrong here. Uh, the limo company had originally sent a party bus to pick up these people, but it broke down on the way, so they sent a 2001 Ford Excursion limo uh, the excursion, along with the other two vehicles that limo company owned, had failed inspection a month earlier and was not supposed to be on the road. When any vehicle, especially an SUV, is converted into a limo, it really impacts the structural integrity of the vehicle. Uh, DMVs and DOTs across the country hate these things, but they're not technically illegal, so they have to allow them. Uh, but this one very recently failed inspection. Uh, further research, I found out that all three of the vehicles this company owns failed four of the last five inspections. Uh, and vehicles like this that have been turned into limos have been involved in the deaths of at least 68 people since 2000. On top of that, the driver was not licensed to drive this vehicle. So even if it should have been on the road, this guy wasn't the one that was supposed to be driving it. It is suspected, but not yet confirmed, that drugs or alcohol may have been a factor in the crash. Uh, but the driver's wife said he was a very careful driver, and she doesn't think it would be anything on his part. Uh, moments before the crash, people in the limo were texting friends and family with various messages that all basically came down to, this car's engine is super loud, we don't feel safe in this vehicle, and we'll all be deaf by the time we get to the brewery. Uh, they were going out to a brewery for someone's birthday. They did not make it there. Um, when it comes down to it, a mother and father lost four of their kids in one accident, and from what I could count, at least seven children lost one or both parents. I mean, these were couples with kids who just went out for the evening and are never coming home because some asshat at a ghetto-ass three-car limo company thought making a couple hundred bucks was more important than keeping a dangerous vehicle off the road. It was more important to the town to save a few dollars in their budget than to fix the intersection. And it was more important for the people in the car to get to their destination than demand the guy stop the car and let them out. I mean, they, they knew something was up and they stayed in the car anyway. It kind of sounds like, and I'm not victim blaming, don't ever think I'm doing that, 
But there were a lot of signs here that somewhere along the way should have been caught. If you're worried about the car, you get out. I've gotten out of dangerous cars or cars with dangerous drivers plenty of times. I've walked home in the dark at one in the morning rather than stay in a dangerous vehicle. I would rather have to walk home than get to my death a few minutes quicker. You know what I'm saying? It's been a few days since I wrote the original script for the show. Uh, just yesterday, I read an update about this story that said the owner's son, so the owner doesn't live in the US. He lives in like India or somewhere in the Middle East. I don't recall right offhand, uh, but his son lives in the US and was in charge of the company. Uh, he's the one that said it was okay to put the car on the road and let the guy drive it. Uh, so he has been arrested and is being held on murder charges right now. A criminally negligent homicide is what he's been charged with uh, since he was you know like I said he was the sole person operating the limo company he made all the decisions uh, he's pled not guilty and if convicted faces four years in prison that's it contribute to the death of 20 people and you only get four years that's some bullshit to me it should be a lot longer than that Another headline that I found, uh, this one's also been updated since I first wrote the script for this episode, and another grim one. You know, I, I try to find things that might have a chuckle or two in it, or stories that are so old it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't sting like a new story would. This one is another one that's a little darker uh, than I usually do for the audience. I can handle dark all day, every day, but for the purposes of the show, I try to keep it a little lighter. We have a dead reporter. A 30-year-old Bulgarian reporter, Victoria Marinova, was found raped and beaten to death uh, on Saturday. Preliminary investigations show that the cause of death was blows to the head and suffocation. The Bulgarian interior minister, Mladen Mladenov, described the murder as exceptionally brutal and has sent the country's top investigators to the city of Ruse to work on the case. At this time, it's unknown if the murder is related to her journalistic work. For the last year, she's been reporting on corruption and fraud involving the European Union. And in this area of the world, it is not at all uncommon for reporters who are digging into this kind of stuff to turn up dead. So they're thinking that maybe what she had been reporting on recently had something to do with that. But I doubt it. I mean, if if somebody is if an organization as big as the EU is going to take you out, they're not raping you before they murder you. You know, they're just, they just want you to shut up. They're sending in a professional to snipe you from like six blocks away and leave it at that. Um, doesn't seem to be related to her work. Uh, she just happens to come from an, an area of the world where people in her line of work can often end up dead. Since the, the day this story broke last Saturday, uh, I've read an update that said a guy has been found and is being held for the rape and the murder. Through security footage and investigation and whatnot, they found out this guy was there. Uh, he hasn't confessed to doing it to the cops. But his mother came out and said that he's already confessed it to her. So at this point, it sounds like it's just a matter of time in getting this guy's confession and getting him processed. The mother did say that he told her he had been on alcohol and drugs when he committed the crime. Um, and that it's not related to her work. He was just some fucked up dude who saw a pretty blonde lady and decided to rape and kill her. Uh, but I can, I can tell you this. I've been on drugs and alcohol plenty of times in my life. And I didn't rape and murder anyone. Anytime I've done something that might be considered fucked up, 
I was usually sober. I like to keep a clear head when I'm on a mission, when, when I have something at stake, when I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do. I'm sober. I am clean as a whistle. I don't get all fucked up and go commit crimes and leave evidence everywhere. That's not how you do it. And this guy can say he was drunk. He could say he was on whatever drugs he was on. He did it because he made the choice to do it. It has nothing to do with how fucked up you are. I had teenage and early 20s years where I liked to party and I didn't rape and kill anybody. And I'm sure everyone listening has been at least drunk once. You didn't go rape and kill anybody. This dude was just a rapist and a murderer. Bottom line. But on to the stories for the day. Diphtheria. What is it? Where can we get more of it? Wait a minute. No. What is it and how do we not get it? Recorded cases of diphtheria date back to 1613, over 200 years before it was given its official name, and it continues to kill people today with over 900 people having contracted the disease in 2017, at least 38 of whom died. Diphtheria is an infection caused by a toxin released by a bacterium that I can't even begin to pronounce, so just to keep it simple, bacteria gets in your body, that bacteria releases toxins that cause diphtheria. Symptoms come on gradually and usually begin with a sore throat, headache, and fever, followed by gray or white patches in the throat that block the airway, causing a barking cough and difficulty breathing. The neck swells from enlarged lymph nodes. Other complications include nasal discharge, abnormal heart rate, inflammation of the nerves, kidney problems, and paralysis. There's also a form of the disease that affects the skin, eyes, and genitals. It's spread through the air by coughing or sneezing or via contaminated objects. There's also some evidence that it could be zoonotic. Vocabulary time, y'all. Zoonotic means it can spread from animals to humans. Not to say that humans aren't animals, we most definitely are, we just possess a hubris that insists we separate ourselves from the rest of the animal kingdom and ultimately that pride will be the downfall of our species. Uh, I didn't find that in reading, just a personal belief of mine, but anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. Some people can carry and spread the disease without showing any symptoms, so you can just be a carrier, Typhoid Mary style. Typhoid Mary, why you bugging? Boom. Boom, boom, bah. Typhoid Mary, I need you hugging. Mm, ah, boom, boom. Run DMC, anyone? Okay. Previous infection may not protect you against future infection. There's at least three main strains of this disease, so just because you had one doesn't mean you're protected against the others. With modern medicine, diphtheria is lethal in 5-10% to of cases and is prevented with vaccination and treated with antibiotics. For severe cases, there is also an antitoxin that consists of a serum, which is blood plasma, extracted from horses who have been exposed to the disease. It doesn't neutralize the toxin already attached to tissue, but it does neutralize toxins circulating in the blood. Before the antitoxin, the disease was lethal in as many as 56% of cases. And the antitoxin is the subject of our first story. And it says this is created from blood plasma. So like when I go sell, and yes, I sell my plasma. I don't donate. You got to pay me for my shit. When I sell plasma, does it go to make serums? I, I see the signs. 
in the plasma center that's like, your heart goo helps save little Billy from bleeding to death, but they never really tell you what they do with it. You know, they're just hoarding it for vampires or something, is what I always assume. And I don't care. 70 bucks a week to go in twice and sell you some of my blood goo? Fine. Whatever. Do whatever you want with it. Maybe I don't want to know what you're doing with it. A vaccine for diphtheria wasn't developed until the 1920s, and even then it wasn't widely used until the 1940s. But the antitoxin was discovered in the 1880s and saw wide usage by 1901 the year this story takes place. And to give proper credit, a lot of the next section of the story is taken from an article written by Ross E. Dehovitz, published in the medical journal Pediatrics, June 2014. On October 19, 1901, Dr. R.C. Harris, a St. Louis physician, attended to a young girl named Bessie Baker who was suffering from advanced diphtheria. As was his routine, he injected diphtheria antitoxin into the child and as a preventative, her two younger siblings as well. He concluded that they should soon be entirely well. But four days later, he was called back to the baker's home to a terrifying discovery. There I found that the little girl was suffering from tetanus. I could do nothing for her. The poison was injected so thoroughly into her system that she was beyond medical aid. Bessie died of tetanus the following day, as did her two siblings within the week, and so began one of the worst safety disasters in the history of American public health. By the time it was over, 13 children would die from contaminated antisera. Diphtheria was a scourge throughout the 19th century. It primarily affected children, and it killed through the release of an exotoxin that creates a pseudomembrane inside the throat of affected patients. When death occurred, it did so primarily through asphyxiation. In 1884, Friedrich Loeffler, a scientist in Berlin, discovered how to culture diphtheria in the lab, and he grew it in guinea pigs. Loeffler's colleagues in Germany and Paris developed experiments proving that a diphtheria toxin, when injected into the guinea pigs and later dogs and horses, produced a substance in their blood that could be used to treat diphtheria in another species. Sort of a proto-vaccine. In September 1894, Emile Roux in Paris announced that his horse antiserum had cut diphtheria mortality from 56% to 24% in his Paris hospital. There was great interest in bringing this new treatment to America. Consequently, the first horse antitoxin factory was established in New York and produced its first doses in January 1895. The Health Commission in St. Louis, Missouri decided to bring this technology to the people of their city as well. They established a factory farm in late 1894, with the first doses becoming available in September 1895. Amand Revold, a local physician and trained bacteriologist, was hired by the city to direct this project. Dr. Revold studied in Paris as a pupil of Louis Pasteur, the guy that figured out how to make milk not kill us even though we're still inherently lactose intolerant creatures and shouldn't be drinking it anyway. Antitoxin was becoming available to the city from private firms, but the health commissioner wanted the city to establish its own supply of antitoxin so they could offer it to the poor for free. Imagine that, mind-blowing to us in modern times, right? 
I mean, a few months ago, my wife had to go to the ER for some pretty bad stomach stuff that I'm not going to get into because it's kind of personal and we still don't know what the deal is. But by the time scans and MRIs and all this other shit was done, left with a bill for $15,000. And that wasn't even for a diagnosis. That was just to say what might be wrong and get a prescription for some antibiotics. They don't know, and we still left with a bill for 15 Gs. And this happens to people throughout the country, all day, every day. Mind-blowing that a health department was like, we want to do good, and we want to do it for free. I talk a lot of shit about the old days, but at least there was a time where people gave a shit about the public's well-being in this country. By 1901, six years after its introduction in the St. Louis area, the use of antitoxin for the treatment of diphtheria had become very successful. It became the standard treatment of presumptive pharyngeal diphtheria. It was in this environment that the seeds of a tragedy began to take form. On September 30, 1901, Dr. Revald bled a horse named Jim and acquired two flasks of serum. Jim had been an ambulance and milk truck horse previously and was turned over to the stables in 1898 for antitoxin production. On October 2nd, Jim became ill with tetanus and was killed. The antiserum obtained on September 30th was ordered to be destroyed. On October 26, 1901, the health department was notified by a physician that he had under observation two cases of tetanus after the use of diphtheria antiserum. Veronica O'Neill Keenan was the first case reported. Bessie and Mae Baker died shortly thereafter. Jacob Centuria, like the others, had initially responded to the diphtheria antiserum, but then six days later, his physician found the patient suffering from Trismus sardonicus, which is a rigid spine, rigid neck, and being cyanotic. Cyanotic means having a blue tint to the skin, typically caused by low oxygen levels in the blood. Jacob died on October 30th. Over the next few days, as more children died, the health department recalled the existing bottles of antitoxin and began an investigation. By November 7th, the 13th dead had been reported. The incident was covered nationwide and the public became fearful. In Chicago, the diphtheria case fatality rate increased by a third because people were scared to take the medicine. The whole country had heard about antiserum in St. Louis killing some kids, so everyone stopped taking it, causing diphtheria infection rates to go up and the fatality rate of the disease to go up. Back in St. Louis, the tetanus court of inquiry began on December 17th. Dr. Revold had insisted that he and Henry Taylor, the colored janitor as the newspapers referred to him, had disposed of the September 30th serum after the horse died. But Taylor's story began to change after he was closeted with the chief of detectives by order of Mayor Wells. After this prolonged interrogation, Taylor was promptly placed back on the stand where he stated that he did release some of the serum dated September 30th. He released it, he stated, because he thought it was safe and because the August 24th serum was exhausted. What they leave out of this article that I found in other sources was that some of the serum from September 30th had been put into bottles labeled August 24th. So even if all of the September 30th batch had been destroyed, there was still contaminated serum out there being used in, in bottles labeled August 24th. 
On February 13, 1902, the commission issued their verdict stating that the 13 children died of tetanus-contaminated vials dated September 30th. Second, the commission found that Henry Taylor, the janitor, bottled the serum but was not fully aware of its poisonous nature. Dr. Revold was aware of the dangerous nature of the September 30th serum but was negligent in ensuring that it was destroyed. Lastly, the court concluded that both Dr. Revold and Taylor were to be dismissed from the health department. Dr. Revold responded to the verdict stating that the board had wrongly dismissed Taylor. Taylor, a man of 65, honest and faithful, was not supposed to be competent to look after the professional affairs of the office. He was simply a good servant, and this discharge will leave him in hard times. After the incident, the city ceased all antitoxin production. Yet it was largely because of this incident and a similar incident in Camden, New Jersey, where there were nine deaths, that Congress would pass the Biologics Control Act in the spring of 1902. Among the arguments made was a statement that individual states were powerless to protect themselves against impure and impotent materials because most of them consumed biologics made out of state. The act took effect on July 1, 1902 and subjected any company making antitoxin or vaccines to inspections and regulations. Many companies went out of business under this increased scrutiny. But the result of this legislation, and legislation a few years later that created the FDA, was to increase the safety and public confidence in these life-saving new therapies. Again, an institution known for harming us in modern times was actually looking out for the well-being of people back then. The FDA, the government body that lets companies put sawdust and artificial sweeteners and beaver glands and way too much salt and sugar into our food, giving us a plethora of health problems. Is a plethora? Plethora. A plethora of health problems? Uh, you know, the people that said, sure, Oxycontin and fentanyl should be legal, actually at one time said, hey, you can't kill people with drugs. There would be other medical disasters over the course of the 20th century, but this 1901 incident was arguably the first ever using a modern medical therapy. Antitoxin, now cleared from suspicion, continued to drive down the death rate of this terrifying disease until a vaccine would be created in 1922. Dr. Revold went on to have a distinguished career as a bacteriologist, and he was elected president of the St. Louis Medical Society. When he died at age 83 in 1942, his obituary made no mention of the diphtheria incident of 1901. After Henry Taylor was fired from the health department, he found work as a waiter and caterer. He died on June 6, 1907 from, con from chronic nephritis and cancer. The physician who signed his death certificate was Dr. Revolt. So 13 dead, 14 if you count Jim the horse, all because they didn't screen the serum. Uh, according to multiple articles I read, there was a means, as primitive as it may have been, they had a way of screening the serum for tetanus before clearing it for use. They had done it before, they just didn't do it this time. The horse seemed healthy, had no signs of tetanus, they'd never had a problem with this horse before, you know, and not screening it made the whole process quicker and cheaper, so they just cleared it for use right away, and it turned out uh, that the serum on that day had teeny tiny baby tetanus in it that hadn't yet caused symptoms in the horse. It led to a lot of changes 
in medical processes and legislation that would go on to prevent the deaths of untold numbers of people in the future. You know, and that's a question I struggle with on a lot of these stories. Was it worth it? What's the acceptable ratio of deaths to save lives before it's not worth it? Let's say these 13 people died, but the changes made saved 20 million. Is 20 million lives worth 13 lives? My answer falls somewhere between, you know, probably and definitely. But what if it was hundreds or thousands or millions of people that had to die? Let's say a million people had to die to save 50 million people. Is that worth it? There's no right or wrong answer. It's based on your values, ethics, morals, and religious beliefs. But the question itself is just always interesting to me. I mean, where do you draw the line? Let's say 10 million people had to die to save 10 million and one. What's the worth of that one life saved? Is it worth the cleanup, the transportation of the bodies, funeral expenses, misery of the 10 million's deceased, uh, deceased people's loved ones? You know, is one life worth it? You can try to answer it, but you never really can. It's too subjective. Uh, but that's the story of Jim the Horse and the Tetanus Scandal. Really should have come up with a better name for it, though. Jim the Horse sounds like a mobster name. Hey, we got some wise guys in Brooklyn that need whacked. I'ma call Jimmy the Horse. Next story, from 1901 St. Louis to 2008 China, we're going to take a look at the 2008 Chinese heparin adulteration. In March 2008, major recalls of heparin, a substance widely used as an injectable anticoagulant, were announced by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, due to contamination of raw heparin stock imported from China. The raw material for the recalled heparin batches was processed in China from pig's intestines by the American pharmaceutical firm Scientific Protein Laboratories. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration was quoted as stating that at least 81 deaths were believed to be linked to a raw heparin ingredient imported from the People's Republic of China, and that they had also received 785 reports of serious injuries associated with the drug's use. According to the New York Times, problems with heparin reported to the agency include difficulty breathing, nausea, vomiting, excessive sweating, and rapidly failing blood pressure that in some cases led to life-threatening shock. Upon investigation of these adverse events by the FDA, academic institutions, and the involved pharmaceutical companies, the contaminant was identified as an oversulfated derivative of chondroitin sulfate, a closely related substance obtained from mammal or fish cartilage and often used as a treatment for arthritis. Since the oversulfated version is not a naturally occurring molecule, it costs a fraction of the true heparin starting material and mimics the in vitro properties of heparin, the counterfeit was almost certainly intentional as opposed to accidental. It means somebody put it there on purpose because it was cheaper. It wasn't a manufacturing accident. Somebody didn't mix up the, the chemicals. Nothing happened to the stock. It just, somebody swapped it out because it was cheaper. The raw heparin batches were found to have been cut with as much as 60% of the counterfeit substance, and motivation for the adulteration was attributed to a combination of cost-effectiveness and a shortage of suitable pigs in China. So the real deal only comes from pigs. 
And if there's not enough pigs to go around, you don't have enough drug to go around. So it then becomes more expensive, you know, supply and demand to get your hands on this raw material to make the heparin. When the FDA conducted an inspection of Baxter's Chinese heparin supplier, it found serious deficiencies at the facility which the FDA detailed in a warning letter. This example once again demonstrated the consequences of a company not following basic good manufacturing practices. As detailed in the warning letter, the company failed to monitor changes in the impurity profile of incoming heparin active raw material. They also failed to adequately investigate out-of-specification results, document processing steps, and validate all critical steps in the process. Uh, suppliers were unqualified, and they did not use valid methods to test products. So basically, there's a factory in China that's supposed to make this stuff to, to keep you from getting blood clots. And instead of using the real pig guts to derive the raw heparin stuff, they switched to fake. And no one along the way, the American companies, the Chinese companies, the Chinese government, no one was actually keeping up with quality inspection records or any kind of inspections with the factories themselves. Prime time for something to go wrong. Uh, the FDA said that it does not have the funds nor bear the responsibility to inspect on a regular basis the overseas upstream processors of finished active pharmaceutical ingredients such as heparin. However, according to the internationally harmonized guideline ICHQ7, Manufacturers are fully responsible for qualifying their suppliers through on-site audits, testing, and regular communications. This ongoing responsibility is essential to ensure supply chain security, drug quality, and drug safety. These basic commitments to the pharmaceutical consumer can only be ensured by adherence to good manufacturing practice and good distribution practice. So that's the FDA basically saying they don't have the time or the money or the interest to monitor these overseas manufacturers and that it's up to the manufacturer to audit their suppliers. So who then is supposed to keep an eye on the manufacturer? Okay, if, if the people making it and the people they get their supplies from aren't your problem, and where the supplies come from are only the manufacturer's problem, there's a whole step being missed there that no one's checking in on the people processing the supplies and turning it into medicine. I found an article from 2016 that says the final number of lives lost was around 149 because it wasn't just 2008. There had been bad heparin deaths in 2007 that they didn't originally connect as part of the ones from 2008. Worse than that, some of the suppliers uh, of the contaminated raw materials were still used from 2008 to 2012 when the FDA finally put them on a banned list. In 2014, one of the suppliers who hadn't yet been banned refused to let the FDA inspect certain parts of their plant. They were hiding something. They knew something wasn't up to snuff and they wouldn't let inspectors check out their factory. And what did they get for that? A warning letter. The FDA really loves warning letters. They're not going to tell you what to do. They're not going to put their foot down. They're not going to file a lawsuit or close your factory. They're going to send you a letter that you don't even have to open. They sent a warning letter to this manufacturer. And I mean, they could have been sending more lethal drugs to the US. All they got was a warning. Uh, as of 2015, Congress was putting the FDA under scrutiny for all of this. You know, the, uh, Congress caught on it like, hey man, your little letters, your stationery you're sending over there isn't getting the job done. 
uh, Congress started demanding that the FDA account for raw material shortages in China to make sure there's no motivation for the manufacturers to use subpar materials. Remember when I said there was a lack of suitable pigs? Unless China has a verifiable resurgence in suitable pigs, we have to assume they're using adulterated materials from other mammals or fish. Plus, the Chinese government allows for the use of those raw sources for production of medications to be sold in China. So they still have the shit sitting around, like beside the barrel of here's what we use for the US is a barrel of here's what we use for China. That shit needs to be processed in two different factories. Or at least the FDA needs to be going over there and making sure that the right barrels are being used. There's always the risk of the, of the wrong materials sitting around. As best we can identify from the, the batch and the bad stuff happening around the 2008 incident, almost 150 people died because someone in China wanted to save a few dollars. And I mean, that would be all I need as a government official to push for the manufacturer of all drugs to, to be sold in, in the U.S., to be made in the U.S., right? How can the FDA effectively keep an eye on a factory in China? They can't. If the drugs are going to be sold here, they need to be made here so somebody can keep an eye on it. That, that would be my whole thing about it. But in the end, 149 people dead from this one instance, no telling how many times it's happened over the history of heparin or, or any kind of drug, anything being manufactured, you know? Uh, I'm sure it wasn't just heparin that this stuff went into. They, they said it was used in arthritis medication, so... No telling how many people have actually died from the overall scandal. This is just an isolated incident within the scandal. All because the manufacturer wanted to save a few dollars. And that's going to pop up again in one of these stories. Just so you know, uh, there seems to be a lot of motivation for people to use cheap subpar materials whenever they're making medication for the rest of the world. A lot of money being thrown around, a lot of oversight that doesn't exist, kind of leads people to greed. And now it's time for five fast facts about death. One, after death, all the muscles of the body relax. This leads to dilated pupils, eyes that are slightly open, and a slack jaw. For a funeral, a mortuary may place plastic caps under the eyelids to avoid a sunken look and to keep them closed. They will often wire the jaw shut as well. Two, Three to five days after death, decay starts to create large blisters over a human body. If a body's not found until this time, it will not be presentable for viewing at the funeral. Additionally, during this later stage of death, bloody froth begins to leak from the nose and mouth. 3. Humans have more bacterial cells living on it and in it than the total number of cells belonging to its own tissues and organs. After death, the defense mechanism breaks down and bacteria starts to multiply and eat the body. 4. Nearly 99% of all species that have ever lived in the course of history have vanished from the planet because of numerous climate upheavals and other events. And we're next. 5. It's estimated that malaria has been responsible for half the deaths of everyone who has ever lived. And I think there was a fact a few shows back that was something like a hundred billion people have come and died on the earth. And so then if we add that, let's round it up to 110 billion, assuming I'm even pulling the right number, 55 billion of them killed by malaria. 
All right, and we've got another story from the early 1900s, a time where we kind of knew how medicine worked, but not well enough to give it to people without killing them. We're talking the 1937 Elixir tragedy, which centered on a miracle drug known as antibiotics, specifically the antibiotic sulfonilamide. God, if you love making fun of people who can't pronounce shit, you've got to be loving this show today. Sulfonilamide. The FDA's role in the regulation of novel medicines was born out of tragedy. 71 adults and 34 children died in the fall of 1937 after taking a drug called elixir sulfonilamide to treat a variety of ailments from gonorrhea to sore throat. At that time, the FDA, which had been launched in 1906 as the Bureau of Chemistry, served simply to police claims made about food and drug ingredients. No formal government approval was required to market new drugs. So they were just there to make sure you put whatever was in it on the label. They didn't care if it worked or if it killed you because they didn't know. We were still figuring stuff out. Medicine was very young at this time. We had just learned not too many years earlier that bleeding somebody to death didn't cure them of their diseases. You know what I'm saying? Paul Wax, a medical toxicologist at the University of Texas, says, The initial 1906 legislation was relatively weak. There had to be some truth to what drug companies were selling, but in terms of safety, let alone efficacy, there wasn't, that just wasn't part of the equation. That all changed in 1938 after the deaths linked to elixir sulfonilamide had become a nationwide scandal. Six years earlier, German pathologist and bacteriologist Gerhard Domack, Domack? I don't know, there's a G and a K, I don't even know how that's pronounced discovered that a chemical called Prontosil protected against certain bacterial infections in mice. Further research demonstrated that the compound's active ingredient, sulfonilamide, could fight streptococcal infections in humans, prompting several pharmaceutical companies, including Merck, Squibb, and Eli Lilly, to begin making sulfonilamide drugs. These medicines were mostly formulated as capsules and tablets, but the S.E. Massengill Company of Bristol, Tennessee, decided that a liquid form of sulfonilamide could also be a big seller. Massengill's chief chemist concocted a solution of 10% sulfonilamide, 72% diethylene glycol, and 16% water. The company's internal controls lab approved the solution's appearance, taste, and fragrance. It was flavored with raspberry extract, saccharin, and caramel, among other ingredients, you know, to make it taste good for kids, because kids really can use antibiotics for a, a ton of different stuff to save their lives, especially back then. And by September 1937, Massengill had distributed 240 gallons of the liquid, called elixir sulfonilamide, across the country. But commercial success soon soured. The first shipments were sent out in early September, and on October 11th, the American Medical Association received reports of the first deaths from physicians in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Six patients in Tulsa, Oklahoma had died of renal failure, that means their kidneys shut down, following treatment with the drugs. Inspectors were immediately dispatched to Massengill headquarters in Bristol and to branch offices in Kansas City, New York, and San Francisco. 
They found that the firm had already learned of the poisonous effects of the liquid sulfonilamide and had sent telegrams to more than a thousand salesmen, druggists, and doctors. However, the telegrams merely requested the return of the product and failed to indicate the urgency of the situation or say that the drug was lethal. At the FDA's insistence, the firm sent out a second wave of messages worded more strongly. Imperative you take up immediately all elixir sulfonilamide dispensed. Product may be dangerous to life. Return all stocks, our expense. The FDA then set out to make sure all the drug was retrieved. Practically the entire force of 239 FDA inspectors and chemists were assigned to the task. So they're using the lab guys to go out and track this stuff down. Like they're serious about getting this all back. They're treating it with the fervor that the government treated like bootlegging with. They're actually making an effort here to get this stuff out of people's hands. State and local health officials joined the search. Newspapers and radio stations continued to issue warnings. The staff began by checking the company's shipping records and the distribution lists in the four distribution houses. Thousands of order slips were examined one by one. In one establishment alone, 20,000 sales slips were checked. FDA employees tracked down the firm's 200 salesmen and questioned them about the dispersion of shipments and physician samples. Finding the salesmen was the first problem. In one case, a salesman was reported to be in a hotel in Washington, D.C. He wasn't there, but forwarding addresses had been left for him in Jackson, Michigan, and Baltimore. These turned out to be for another man with the same name, and this was a common issue in trying to track these people down. Once the salesmen were found, there was still the problem of getting the distribution information. One man in Texas, for instance, revealed the necessary information only after being jailed by state authorities. So he didn't want to give out any information for some reason, whatever. He probably just, he figures that's between him and the company and the customers and didn't want to cooperate with law enforcement. So they threw his ass in jail and then he started talking. In many cases, locating the purchasers of the elixir required some real detective work. In some drugstores, the elixir had been sold without prescriptions to purchasers whose names the druggist didn't know. In other cases, doctors had incomplete records, or none at all, of the names and addresses of patients for whom they had prescribed it. In East St. Louis, Illinois, for instance, 49 prescriptions were filled and the only identification on some were notations like Betty Jane, 9 months old, or Miss Jackson, no address. Even when the purchaser was finally located, the inspectors frequently needed to do some ingenious questioning to determine what happened to the elixir. One East St. Louis woman told an inspector she had destroyed the drug. The inspector persisted in his questions, however, and found out that she had thrown the bottle out the window into an alley. The inspector luckily found the bottle still unbroken, still containing enough elixir to kill any child intrigued enough to swallow its sweet raspberry-flavored contents. Many doctors and pharmacists did everything in their power to recover the elixir, one physician postponed his wedding to help an FDA chemist search for a three-year-old boy whose family had moved into mountain country after obtaining a prescription. Oh man, that's work. That's care, dude. You're going to put off your wedding to go hike through the mountains to find some family you gave this medicine to? That's dedication. Can you think of any doctor that would do that today? Would one of them get up off their little rolly stool and go help a patient out like this? No. 
Other physicians apparently were reluctant to admit that they had prescribed the drug, perhaps fearing they would be held accountable for its consequences. One inspector checking out a Georgia drugstore was told that a shipment of one gallon of elixir had been returned to the manufacturer after only six ounces had been dispensed. The patient who had taken the six ounces had suffered no ill effects, the druggist reported, and the inspector confirmed that this was true. But the inspector assigned to Bristol reported that 12 ounces was actually missing from the return gallon, so the inspector in Georgia did some more questioning around town and tuned his ears to the local gossip. He learned that two other people had also bought the elixir. Both had died. Similarly, a South Carolina doctor told an inspector that he had dispensed the medicine to only five people and none had died, but when the inspector began asking questions around town, someone told him of the death of a lumber mill employee. The inspector recognized the symptoms as those characteristic of poisoning. Through the mill superintendent, he located the employee's sister. Yes, she said, her brother had gone to the doctor and given some red medicine before he died. She told the inspector that, in accordance with custom, all medicines and sick room utensils had been placed on the grave, about one and a half miles back in the fields. Accompanied by family and friends, the dead man's sister and the inspector walked to the wooded knoll. On the single mound of fresh earth were several bottles, dishes, spoons, and a four-ounce bottle containing about an ounce of elixir sulfonilamide. It bore the weathered but legible prescription label of the doctor. In fact, the inspector learned four of the doctor's patients had died after taking the elixir. So a bunch of people just don't want to cooperate, it sounds like. You can't track them down. When you do, they don't have their receipts or sales slips, and they tell you some half-ass lie, and then you go to the pharmacist or the doctor, and they don't want to tell you anything because they don't want to look bad. kind of looks bad if you're some podunk town's doctor and four of your patients just died. I guess I, I kind of get where they're coming from, but this is a little bit bigger than just your reputation, and it's also not your fault. People really should use common sense and keep the greater good in mind. When, when they're interacting with the rest of society. That would do us so much good. Anyway. Victims of elixir sulfonilamide poisoning, many of them children being treated for sore throats, were ill about 7 to 21 days. All exhibited similar symptoms characteristic of kidney failure. Stoppage of urine, severe abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, stupor, and convulsions. They suffered intense and unrelenting pain. At the time, there was no known antidote or treatment for diethylene glycol poisoning. In a letter to the President Franklin D. Roosevelt, a woman described the death of her child. The first time I ever had occasion to call in a doctor for Joan and she was given elixir of sulfonilamide. All that is left to us is the caring for her little grave. Even the memory of her is mixed with sorrow, for we can see her little body tossing to and fro and hear that little voice screaming with pain, and it seems as though it would drive me insane. It is my plea that you will take steps to prevent such sales of drugs that will take little lives and leave such suffering behind and such a bleak outlook on the future as I have tonight. Diethylene glycol. Keep, keep that word in your mind, because that also comes up in a future story. It comes up in the same story that also goes back to counterfeit chemicals in these drugs. Uh, in, in, in an upcoming story, somebody's going to use diethylene glycol as counterfeit glycerin 
and fuck up a bunch of people's day. But anyway, that's I'm getting ahead of myself. A few simple tests on experimental animals would have demonstrated the lethal properties of the elixir. Animal testing wasn't uncommon. In fact, many pharmaceutical companies at the time, including Massengill, performed animal testing of certain drugs. It just wasn't required, and in this instance, Massengill chose not to test the new drug first. Even a review of the current existing scientific literature of the time would have shown that other studies, such as those reported in several medical journals, had indicated that diethylene glycol was toxic and would cause kidney damage or failure. But in 1937, the law did not prohibit the sale of dangerous, untested, or poisonous drugs. Dr. Samuel Evans Massengill, the firm's owner, said, My chemist and I deeply regret the fatal results, but there was no error in the manufacture of the product. We have been supplying a legitimate professional demand and not once could have foreseen the unlooked-for results. I do not feel there was any responsibility on our part. Massengill's chief chemist did not share these feelings. Harold Watkins committed suicide after learning of the effects of his latest concoction. Through the dogged persistence of federal, state, and local health agencies, and the effects of the American Medical Association and the news media, most of the elixir was recovered. Of 240 gallons manufactured and distributed, 234 gallons and one pint was retrieved. The remainder was consumed and caused the deaths of the victims. 25 seizures were made under federal law. The charge was misbranding the elixir. See, uh, elixir implied an alcoholic solution, whereas this was a glycol solution and contained no alcohol. So technically, legally, they had mislabeled their product. If the product had been called a solution instead of an elixir, no charges of any kind would have ever been made but the FDA slapped them with the violation of calling it an elixir. The FDA would have had no legal authority to ensure the recovery of the drug and many more people probably would have died. Uh, FDA Commissioner Walt Campbell, who was then pressing for better federal regulation of drugs, pointed out how the inadequacy of the law had contributed to the disaster. It is unfortunate that under the terms of our present inadequate federal law, the Food and Drug Administration is obliged to proceed against this product on a technical and trivial charge of misbranding. The elixir sulfonylamide incident emphasizes how essential it is to public welfare that the distribution of highly potent drugs should be controlled by an adequate federal food and drug law. We should not lose sight of the fact that we had many deaths in cases of blindness resulting from using another new drug, dinotrophenol, which was recklessly placed upon the market some years ago. Deaths and blindness from this drug are continuing today. We also should remember the deaths resulting from damage to the liver that have occurred from syncophen poisoning? Syncophen poisoning? a drug often recommended in such painful conditions as rheumatism. We also have unfortunate poisoning, acute and chronic, resulting from a thyroid and radium preparations improperly administered to the public. These unfortunate occurrences may be expected to continue because new and relatively untried drug preparations are being manufactured almost daily at the whim of the individual manufacturer, and the damage to public health cannot accurately be estimated. 
The only remedy for such a situation is the enactment by Congress of an adequate and comprehensive National Food and Drug Act, which will require that all medicines placed upon the market shall be safe to use under the directions for use. There you have it. The guy that actually stood up and said, hey, you need to let the FDA be the FDA. We're, these guys killed how many people and all they're getting is a you put the wrong label on the bottle charge. As it turns out, the Elixir experience did more than just hasten the enactment of the 1938 Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The new drug section, added to prevent such tragedies, gave the United States a new system of drug control which provided superior protection while stimulating medical research and progress. So rather than hinder the medical community and, and the progress of medicine, these new laws actually helped it get ahead. It helped speed things up. It helped make things smoother. There was now a process and a way to get your, your drug from concept to market. And it helped advance what people are doing in medicine. It encouraged sharing and a sense of community among chemists and companies. 25 years later, it saved the nation from an even greater drug tra tragedy, the thalidomide disaster, like that in Germany and England. And the thalidomide disaster is on the list. I think it comes up in part two. Uh, there is a thalidomide disaster that the United States chose not to participate in because, uh, because the FDA said, no, you can't sell this here. Dr. A.S. Calhoun, who, despite sounding like an old-school pool hall hustler with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, slash understudy for Foghorn Leghorn, I mean, come on, to A.S. Calhoun, $20 a ball says no man can beat A.S. Calhoun. Uh, anyway, A.S. Calhoun was a doctor, and he had this to say about the incident. Nobody but Almighty God and I can know what I have been through these past few days. I have been familiar with death in the years since I received my MD from Tulane University School of Medicine with the rest of my class of 1911. Covington County has been my home. I have practiced here for years. Any doctor who has practiced more than a quarter of a century has seen his share of death. But to realize that six human beings, all of them my patients, one of them my best friend, are dead because they took medicine that I prescribed for them innocently. And to realize that the medicine which I had used for years in such cases suddenly had become a deadly poison in its newest and most modern form, as recommended by a great and reputable pharmaceutical firm in Tennessee. Well, that realization has given me such days and nights of mental and spiritual agony as I did not believe a human being could undergo and survive. I have known hours when death for me would be a welcome relief from this agony. They could teach you a lot about being a doctor, but they don't teach you about run-on sentences. Over a hundred people, mostly kids with sore throats, died because a pharmaceutical company didn't want to do animal testing. Why didn't they? Because they didn't have to. Cheaper, faster, easier. Same thing as the screening of the, of the anti-serum or the anti-toxin in the last case. They're like, yeah, we could do this, but we're not gonna. We don't, no, it's cool. Just go ahead, send it out. Sometimes there is a case for Big Brother in some capacity, maybe not the, the overtaking, all-knowing, all-seeing, but something, some sort of oversight, I think, is good for most things. And, and I get it, as a former vegan, uh, well, I was vegan with cheese. I ate cheese, but I cut out all other animal products for about eight years. I understand 
the issues around animal testing. I get it. You feel for those animals. They're, they're being taken from whatever their natural life should be, thrown in a cage and pumped full of chemicals until they die. But would you rather have a hundred dead kids or five dead rabbits? I mean, in this situation, it could have seriously come down to just that. We've got a hundred dead kids or they could have tested this on five rabbits. And it brings us back to the question, what is it worth? As much as I despise animal cruelty, I'll take a few dead rabbits and mice over dozens of dead children any day. I mean, if, you, if there's any other better ideas out there, you know, let me, PETA, the FDA, and every drug company and cosmetics company in the world know because we'd all love to hear it. Yes, animal testing sucks, but children dying is way shittier. Uh, that's the three stories about bad medicine. I've got four more. But trying to get to them right now would really cause this episode to run over time. So I'm going to stop right here, make this one a two-parter. We'll cover the other stories in the next episode. What did we learn? Don't trust pharmaceutical companies. Don't trust the government. Take as few meds as possible and learn everything you can about them before you take them. There's no jokey lesson here today. Just the serious sentiment that you need to be vigilant in knowing about the things you put into your body before you take them food meds penises whatever okay so there's one joke whatever you're putting in your body know what it is before you do it we've had a few itunes reviews uh, in the last week or so that's great it really helps the show out uh, makes it more visible on there so more people can find it makes it easier for you to find uh, if you haven't reviewed no better death on itunes please please do so uh, if you're a fellow podcaster and you'd like to swap reviews, just hit me up uh, through email or any of the social media accounts. Uh, can you hit someone up on Instagram? I don't know. The Instagram I never really fuck with, so probably not the best way to contact me. But email, Facebook, Twitter. If you want to exchange reviews, let me know. I'm always down to listen to a new show and give an honest review. Uh, NoBetterDeath.info has the links to everything. So you don't need to remember our Facebook handle, Twitter handle, whatever. Just go to nobetterdeath.info. It's all right there. Uh, but the show is No Better Death everywhere. So just look for No Better Death and we're there. Uh, if you're not following us on Facebook and Twitter, you're missing out. All month long, we're doing Misfits in the Morning in honor of Halloween. Every morning, I put up a link to a different Misfits song. It's the song of the day. Uh, also, still throwing up the Today in Death, letting you know what tragic uh, fatal events and celebrity deaths happened on that day in history. So if you're not following us, not checking us out, uh, do so. And definitely uh, send us an email or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter if you have ideas for the show, your own personal stories about death, whatever you got, let me know. iTunes reviews, please. I am, as I have always been, Sick Grayson. Until next time, try not to die. Oh, and uh, just a little P.S. I want to shout out a few of the shows that I listen to. If you're looking for other shows to fill your ear holes with, uh, dark, creepy, macabre, paranormal, murdery, true crime type stuff, uh, check out Keep It Weird, That's Weird, Two Girls, One Ghost, Teen Creeps, Time Suck, and That's Why We Drink, Give Me Murder or Give Me Death, and Murderific True Crime Podcast. All of those are good ones. Uh, they should all be available on iTunes or Spotify and I believe Stitcher. So definitely, if you like this show or if you think this show could be better, go check out those shows because they're like this show, but better. 
Uh, again, I am Sid Grayson. Try not to die.